0: we have a special guest this morning who's going to be sharing the word his name is paul pastor some of you especially those who were in our tuesday morning bible study remember a while back we read excerpts out of a small book called the listening day we have some copies of that in the back available if you're interested in a copy um paul is the author of that book and he's got several more volumes that are uh, are they fully available or just the first two october in October, the third one will come out. They're beautiful. He wrote another book called The Face of the Deep, and we have some copies of that available in the back today as well. And they're about a third off what Amazon sells for. So just so you know that, Paul has, uh, has been a friend of mine loosely through the last decade. We went to school together. Our circles crossed over, but we never really connected a whole lot. And then God just continues interweaving our paths over these past years. He's become a friend of mine, so I'm really thankful that he can be here today to share with you, and I'm also going to set him up by reading the scripture for us. Okay, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven. And after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of God. My father promised, which you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water. But in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and they asked him, Well, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father has set by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Oh, good morning, Central Bible. It is so fun to be in this room. I'm of the Multnomah vintage where this was chapel for us. So I have worshiped in this room. I have taken some great naps in this room. I have laughed and even shed a few tears in this room. There's so many good memories. Uh, but the one thing I've not done in this room is, uh, is speak, preach. So it's a real joy to do that here today. Ah. Uh, Ben, thank you for doing the reading. It strikes me, as we read that, that we are standing on a bit of a cliff today, looking over the edge. If what Jesus said is true, and the promise of the Holy Spirit is the power that will enable his people to bear witness to his work to the ends of the earth, then we are included in what Christ said. What Jesus said is true. There is a mystery in this room with us. There is a mystery in our own souls. God, through his spirit, imparting his own life to his people. So even though many of us have read this passage dozens of times, I want to commit to you that I am meeting it for the first time today, as if for the first time today. I want you to join me in that. I want you to try to hear this story as if it was the first time. I want you to try to hear the book of Acts as if it's the first time. As long as you may have known him, I want you to say hello, as if for the first time. So standing on that cliff with you, getting ready to take the jump, let's turn our hearts and ask God to faithfully shepherd and steward this for us today. Holy Spirit, you are the giver of life. We live because you lived first. Jesus the Son and through the will of the Father ordained that we should come to this day and this place consider what it means to be witnesses of your fire. Bless me today to not speak a single word amiss, and would you let your word be fruitful in your people here? In Christ's name, amen. Is there anything I need to do with my microphone? Or do I sound okay? Bend it up a little more. How's that? Is that better? There's somebody coming from the back. Come and save us from this. Hello. My misshapen face is causing problems. How's that? That looks better. Looks better. Yeah. Okay. That'll that'll allow me to get my best Charlton Heston voice going for when God is uh, speaking. Okay, let's talk about fire. Um, How many people breathed in a lot of smoke from the Eagle Creek fire in August and September? The sky turned red. It was apocalyptic. We all witnessed that fire here in the Portland area. Um, My wife and family and I got a up close and personal vision of it since we live right in the gorge. We had to evacuate our home for 12 days as a result of the forest fire, and it was an intense time for our family. The woods burned within about 50 feet of our house, and during the time that we had to decide what could fit in our van and what we would take, uh, we saw many strange things. Snakes crawling out of the rocks, and we felt strange waves of heat coming out of the woods, and Uh, oh, my goodness, it was like the world was ending. And the experience of evacuation, especially in the light of that fire, uh, was something that made me think a little bit. Because just this morning, I woke up to a relatively cold house out there, and I went to our wood stove, first thing, and I took the very thing that had been so frightening in August on the end of a little match, and I struck it, and I lit some newspaper, which caught, and lit some kindling on fire, which caught, and lit a big fat log on fire. And in about 10 minutes, we had a crackling, popping fire, and I sat in front of it, and drank a cup of coffee, listened to the house wake up. And the very thing that had been so terrifying in August was warming and comforting and lovely and wonderful when it was sitting in my wood stove. So I want you to consider with me a a real mystery, the, the fact that the same thing that makes fire so dangerous is what makes it so good. Its ability to transform. Fire is a chemical reaction, right? It takes one set of molecules arranged in a particular way like a stick and it rearranges them it turns some of the molecules into smoke. It turns some of the molecules into ash. It releases energy in the form of heat and light. And when it's done, nothing is the same. And that frightens us when the woods are burning. And that makes us smile and feel cozy when it's January and the fire is a fire in the wood stove. Hold that in your mind. As we turn to the book of Acts, this morning I want to offer you a lens, offer you a lens not only to see this passage in Acts, but to see the whole book of Acts, and not just to see the whole book of Acts, but to see your life in light of Acts. We have a lot to do, and yet we only have really one thing to do, and that's talk about how the love of God through the Holy Spirit is like that fire fundamentally transformative, very dangerous, and very, very good. Now, I know that you guys have started the book of Acts already, and that you will continue to preach through the book in coming weeks and months. But I want to give some context to it now, because we can't understand what Jesus is saying in this passage unless we see it in relationship to its context in Scripture and its context in the cosmos in relationship to the rest of the Bible and in relationship to everything else. Let's start with the cosmos. To get the context on what Christ says to his disciples here, we don't just have to go back in history. We have to go back before history. We have to go back, before time and space existed as we know it, before there was really any when or anywhere, there was only who? God. One God, and yet existing eternally as three persons whom we call the Divine Trinity. It's a mystery, right? How a person could be one and yet three. How God can be... We can completely accurately speak of him as a he. And yet also as a they. Perfect unity and perfect community. Now what allowed him to exist in this way? If there was no time, so that there was no firstness involved. And if there was no place... So that boundaries of bodies didn't draw the limits of where one person began and one stopped. Because God is love, it was a distinction of His love that made the Father the Father, the Son the Son, and the Spirit the Spirit. The Father was the person who loved with a love that was fatherly begetting, generative, giving, providing. The Son was the Son because His love was a begotten love, listening, responsive, expanding who the Father was. And because they are God, Together their love breathed out a divine person whom we call the Holy Spirit. The $10 theological term for this is the eternal procession of the Holy Spirit. And it's why the Spirit comes from the Father and the Son. As, one theologian says, the very breath of love. And so we get this picture of existence, don't we, that at once is so foreign. We can't imagine what it would be like to exist in this way and yet so familiar because we have been made in its image. There's a certain kinship that comes when we hear of such love that is united and one, and yet also diverse and communal. Is it a paradox for our minds? Yes. But is there some understanding we can reach for with our hearts? Yes. Because the first chapters of the Bible paint a picture of that God's love founding all things, in a very good way, founding creation, crowning creation with his own image. Let us make man in our image, he says. And did he do it? Yes. Male and female, diverse, created he them. And yet they both were humanity. Together they were united as an image of that eternal community. Now we know what happened for humanity, don't we? We know that we chose to reject love and redefine love. And our choice symbolized by eating the fruit of knowledge, of knowing what was good, of knowing what was evil, of bringing this knowledge into ourselves. It struck at the very root of what we had been made in the image of, right? It upended the very source of our life. It violated the unity. It violated the community. All of a sudden, the death that comes through the curse struck at what it meant for us to relate to each other as one. It severed the ties of love between Adam and Eve. It severed their relationship of productivity and goodness with creation. It severed their ties with so many things. Because by their choice to redefine love, they had taken an axe to the roots of the world. The rest of the story of the Bible leading up to Acts, as you know, is how that love strove to reconnect itself with humanity. It follows a single family in ancient Mesopotamia, Abraham, and we see that family over the course of generations grow. We see them become a nation. We see them find a land. We see them do politics, do economics. We see them do religion. We see them try and try and try and try again to reconnect with the source of love in unity and community. And we see them fail and fail and fail and fail again. And yet through his prophets, that eternal source of love kept speaking and kept promising things. One would come who had been there before there was anywhere, and before there was any when, one would come to show us and teach us and lead us and deliver us from inside the problem, from inside humanity. And it would be that one who, from the beginning, had had a love that was childlike, had been the son the one who listened and responded and was begotten and, in the words of Jesus of Nazareth, said and did nothing that he hadn't seen and heard the Father do first. He would be our hope, the prophet said again and again, to be one and to love His story, as you know, because you're a Bible church, is told in four Gospels. You just finished the Gospel of Mark, am I right? Okay. Mark is one of four lenses that show us the story of this incarnate love set loose upon the world. Another one is Luke, and as many or most of you know, Luke is the author of Acts, Writing very soon uh, after the life of Jesus, and an eyewitness to many of the events in Acts, Luke knows his stuff. Many of us think of Acts as if it is an epilogue or a sequel to Luke's gospel. But the truth of the matter is that it's not. Acts is a continuation of Luke's gospel. Now I want you to think for a moment the implications. In a book whose characters are largely the early church, would it change how you read it? To think of it not as an addendum to the story of Jesus, but a continuation of the story of Jesus. What would it change if Acts was really a gospel? So if you're like me, you've caught or you've been taught a particular way of reading Acts that puts all of the focus on the apostles, even the traditional title of the book is the Acts of the Apostles. Would it change things if you thought about this as the Acts of Christ or the Acts of the Holy Spirit? Now, Acts is a gospel in two ways. It's a gospel because we see Jesus, uh, even in the very passage we read today, preaching and teaching at the very beginning of the book, and then he pops in for one brief in-person interlude when a man named Saul, who's persecuting the early church, is on his way to a city in Syria and gets knocked flat by a vision of the, uh, of the risen Christ. We'll come back to that. But Acts is also a gospel because of the Holy Spirit through the body of Jesus, Acts is not just a gospel because we see Jesus of Nazareth in person, but because Luke very gently redefines who Christ is. So we see the reality of Jesus in this second way throughout the book of Acts. We see the reality of the body of Christ that Paul would later write about with such forceful language, that same Saul who was encountered by the risen Christ, got knocked flat. He, uh, Do you remember what Jesus said to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? No. My friends? No. My people? Righteous people? Good people? My witnesses? No. Why are you persecuting me? Acts tells us the story of a community of people whose expectations of what God is doing to restore love among them get totally upended. I want you to picture the despair of being a disciple who saw Jesus crucified, the hope and the elation of seeing him resurrected. The satisfying excitement of spending 40 days under his teaching. And the complete shock of having him say, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They're loving this. And then in the verse that comes right after, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They're expecting their deliverer and their leader to move with them to the ends of the earth, aren't they? Wouldn't they? Shouldn't they? And he leaves with the instruction that all they need to do is go to Jerusalem and wait to not do anything until they've received this power to be witnesses. Now, I want you to consider something. I want you to consider that Jesus was talking from personal experience when he talked about the disciples receiving power when the Holy Spirit came on him. Uh, we often talk about the incarnation a little bit like we talk about Superman. Super, superhero movies are really in vogue right now. Uh, and Superman, as you know, this sort of outsider from the planet Krypton who comes and like dresses up like a human being. But is he a human being? No, he's a son of Krypton. mild mannered Clark Kent, right? The reporter. But if you shoot Clark Kent, the bullet bounces off Superman, doesn't it? Okay, We're, our faith is not alone in having an incarnated God. Even in, uh, uh, in Acts, you'll see later on that Paul and, uh, I think it's Barnabas, they go into this Greek village, and they think that, he's, that they are Zeus and Hermes. They're Like, you just did a wonder and a sign and a miracle. You must be an incarnate God. Let us worship you. And they're like, no, let us actually direct the attention, right? Uh, the Hindus as well have... Uh, This idea of incarnation, where the God becomes in appearance like a human. But these myths feature the gods taking on humanity, like Superman becoming Clark Kent. And Christianity explicitly says that doesn't work with Jesus. Paul, the same Paul who saw the risen Christ on the road to Damascus in Syria, Later, wrote in Philippians that when Jesus joined us in humanity, he did not count equality with God something to be held on to, but he emptied himself. Total identification. You remember that Jesus, after his baptism, was led into the desert by the Spirit to be tested. After the Spirit had come upon him, he was taken into the desert, he was tested. And then Luke writes in his gospel that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus begins his earthly ministry explicitly in the power of the Spirit. The incarnate Son doing his signs, doing his wonders, teaching with power. Not just because he was the Son, he was, but he'd emptied himself to the point where he needed the Spirit on him to do what must be done. Now, this helps us see the gospel of Acts in a new light, I think. If Jesus is gathering his friends for four, and at the culmination of 40 days of teaching says, you have the job of witnessing to me, to the ends of the earth, but you can't do it without power. Wait until you have the power. That Jesus perhaps remembered what it felt like to come back from the wilderness to begin his ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he knew that his friends and followers would need this. And he said, wait for what the Father has promised. Do it like I did it. Now I want to move, uh, now that we've considered this cosmic context, this biblical context, this idea that Jesus in Acts is setting us up for love with a remarkably intimate and, in a very holy way, disturbing vision of ourselves. The idea that he has called us to extend his mission and ministry to the ends of the earth as his witnesses and has promised us the power to do it, is something that makes me personally a little uncomfortable. I would rather just be a foot soldier, and yet he's invited me into the very thing that existed before there was anywhere and any when. He has to restore our race's fallenness, chosen to take that experience of unity and community in love and place it at the center of our mission and ministry. And in this way, he promised the Spirit would be our power for a particular purpose, to witness. Now, I'm sure there's Greek students in this room, And I'm sure that you know that the root word of witness is where we get the word martyr in Greek, martyro, martyros. This idea of testifying in a way that's not just like you would testify in court, but with the implication that your whole self is present. To be a witness through this conception is not just to proclaim and preach. It is to be a witness like Stephen was a witness, as you will read of Stephen being a witness in the book of Acts, who, while he was being killed for his faith in Jesus by the religious leaders, just kept right up to the point he died, saying what he saw. Jesus. I see Jesus. I see Jesus, he says as he's being stoned to death. Witness is not just saying the gospel, it is living out the gospel with an audience. And even in the story of Stephen, his last words echo those of Jesus on the cross. Asking forgiveness for his murderers. And we get this image in narrative form, thanks to Luke's pen We get this image that Christ's own work is going forward. Now, why do we need this power? Why is it that God chose to put at the very center of our calling a connection to his own life? Why is it that he didn't just give us a job to do, but he gave us a promise of power? Because his word from the very beginning has met resistance. Because there is a darkness in the world. A darkness that says, I don't want love. I don't want unity. I certainly don't want community. I want to say what is good and evil for myself. So as you read the book of Acts, you'll see three categories of resistance Three things that stand in the way of witness, and three ways that the Spirit specifically, strongly counteracts resistance to God's own love. You will see the rich resist the gospel, you will see the rulers resist the gospel, and you will see the religious resist the gospel. You will see three fundamental human ways, again and again, story after story, narrative after narrative, where as the word is going forward, as the witnesses of Jesus are going out through Jerusalem and through Judea and through Samaria and to the very ends of the earth, you'll see that the people who stand against them all want to redefine love as something that benefits them. And here's part of the wonder of the fact that Acts is not just a sequel to Luke, but a gospel. Because those same enemies were Jesus' enemies in the book of Luke. You saw it in Mark as well. Who did he speak against? The rich, the rulers, and the religious. But do you know what Acts does for us? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, it shows in narrative form each of those categories be redeemed and join the church the rich resist the word of jesus yeah in ephesus you'll see you'll see it it's an economic engine in ephesus they're afraid that they can't sell their idols if people become christians it hurts the it hurts the wallet and so they start a riot but we also see lydia a seller of purple cloth, a rich woman in that culture, use her power and privilege for the sake of the gospel. We see rulers like Festus and Felix, like Agrippa, even Caesar, if you read between the lines, resisting the work of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we see Cornelius, a Roman centurion, a ruler, a symbol of oppression, and the Spirit comes upon him just like at the Jews at the beginning, and his whole household become the first Gentiles to join the people of God. And you see the religious again and again and again turning religiosity and legalism against the love of Christ. And we see the Spirit gently undermining them through the church. Redefining what true spirituality is, what true love is. And our example of that is a man named Saul, who begins the book as a hard-nosed persecutor for religious reasons of the church and ends it as its most powerful and potent missionary. This is why we need the power to witness, because from the beginning, God's love has been rejected by our kind. And just like always, he works from inside the problem to redeem us from our roots up. Back to the image of fire. You'll read in a few weeks the story of Pentecost. And the image of the spirit that comes on the early church is of the appearance of fire. Transformative, so dangerous, so good. And what makes that spirit, what makes that fire so good is his ability to join us throughout history because he was there before time, throughout the world because geography doesn't limit him. What makes him so good is his ability to join us to the body of Jesus and empower us to witness out the mission of Jesus. That's a good danger. But he will also burn away anything that is not of love in us in the process. As we go, he refines us. And this work, just like it does in Acts, sometimes looks marvelous, and it sometimes looks mundane. It sometimes looks heavenly, and it sometimes looks very homely. This work of witnessing that you and I share this power of the Spirit that enables us to speak and witness and yes, even be martyred, whether over the course of a lifetime or all in a moment. This is love, but it is a dangerous love. And so the question becomes simple for us today. As we seek to take this scripture and internalize it, as we seek to peek over the edge of this cliff and consider, are we going to jump? Do we see ourselves as God sees us? Do you see yourself so intimately connected to Jesus' mission and ministry that his life has become your life? That his power has become your power. That his work has become your work. Because we see that vision of Jesus working out through the book of Acts, and it has never stopped over the course of 20 centuries since then. I think it's beautiful that uh, whoever set the stage put Yarrow as a uh, as a flower up here because this is one of the most potent images i can think of of this body of jesus is this one flower or is it many we would speak of it as if it's one but as you look up close you see that it's made of countless smaller flowers in shape and in color and in quality echoing the whole looking like the whole. And this herb, which legend says Achilles put on the wounds of his troops at the Battle of Troy, it's a warrior's herb, it's a healing herb. It's fierce and yet it's also so good. This is an image of what we are called to be. Unity and community. One and yet many. It's just one thing we've been talking about all day. That the life of the God who made us in his image is still loving through us. But do we say yes to it? Do we see ourselves that way? Do we walk through our day with the sense of holy sacredness? That all of our work can become witnessing if we let it? Do we understand that we stand at the edge of a great frontier of faith and that we are the ones who are pioneering its next steps? We forget so easily that in limitless joy and limitless peace and limitless love and patience and kindness and goodness, God has given us all things in Himself. And then simply said, Go and tell them what you are seeing. That's a story I can give my life to. That's a story I would dare say I would be willing to give my life for. That's a story that makes me happy and yet heavy. It's a story that invites me to see myself, to see the Spirit and to see this world as I believe God sees it. So today, as you go from this place, as your brother in Jesus, I just invite you to do one thing nothing hard, nothing difficult. I just want you to ask the Spirit, this, this promised power for your witnessing, to come closer to you in your life than he ever has before. I don't want to put limits on what that means for you, but it will mean love. Dangerous love, refining love, transforming love, good love. Will you with me today, as we prepare to sing, to take communion, to go from here into our many spheres of influence, will you simply consider what it means to say a new yes to God's Spirit? Because in doing so, you sit at the feet of Jesus with those disciples. You invite the fiery love of heaven in. And you're given everything you need for life and witness in the body of Jesus. Let me just pray a blessing over us as we close. Holy Spirit, you are here. You have always been here. And we confess that we forget it so easily. And yet we rejoice that you have remembered us, that you have been present to us, that you communicate your love, your joy, your peace, and all the fruit that you bring. whether or not our eyes are open. But we pray with all humility that you would open our eyes, Lord, in a new way today, that we might be your witnesses, that we might witness to what Jesus is doing among us, marvelous and mundane, heavenly and homely, and that for this day and this age, in the city of Portland and its surrounding villages, that you would let the gospel go out through us with faithfulness, and power. In your name we pray these things. Amen.